Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Alec Kesu, and I'm very fortunate to have Trevor Pierce as a guest on the program today. Dr. Pierce is an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And today we'll be discussing his new book, Pragmatism and Evolution, Organism and Environment in American Philosophy published in 2020 by the University of Chicago Press. In this work, he writes about how evolutionary and biological ideas influenced the philosophies of pragmatist thinkers in the late 1800s. Dr. Pierce, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, So to get started, could you uh, tell us a bit about you, tell us your background and how you became uh, interested in this topic? Yeah, so I have an interdisciplinary background. I have undergraduate degrees in engineering and English, and then graduate degrees in biology and philosophy. And so the book, I think, kind of reflects that interdisciplinary uh, history in my own life. I started thinking about the book during my doctoral research in the program on conceptual and historical studies of science at the University of Chicago, where we actually had a lot of students interested in pragmatism. And the, the book really sort of more directly came out of one of my first published articles, which was on the popularization of the term environment and the organism environment dichotomy by the English philosopher Herbert Spencer. Uh, so most people probably don't know that the, the word environment really wasn't in common use uh, until the later 19th century. And even though he didn't coin the word, it was Spencer that, that popularized the English word environment. And reading the pragmatists, people like John Dewey, you're I was I at least was really struck by how common that that kind of biological language is in their work. So language like adaptation, adjustment, evolution and organism environment dichotomy itself. And so just kind of noticing that uh, got me got me started on the path to this book. Got it. Right. And you have to put yourself in the mindset of people at that time, because, you know, if if I heard words like evolution um, or, you know, the words that you just said uh, in modern speech, they, you know, they would strike me as evolution, evolution uh, related language. But at the time, those were really new ways of speaking and writing. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's certain, yeah, that's right. And the, so the, if you see the word environment, then you, you know, there's got to be this link to the, to the early social sciences and Herbert Spencer, because he was the one that popularized that term and this idea of thinking about, you know, the, the social organism on the one hand and the social environment on the other hand and so on. Yeah. For those, um, you know, listeners who, who might be writers or, or other interested folks, could you just tell us uh, a bit about what the writing process looked like for you? 
Yeah, so because the book deals with such a large cast of characters, not only the pragmatists themselves, but also the biologists that they were they were talking to and interacting with, I ended up having to travel to a lot of different archives to read old letters, student lecture notes, and, and all that stuff. And I think probably there's a lot more archival research that went into the background of this book than a lot of history of philosophy books, partly because of the large cast of characters, but also because many of the people I was writing about don't don't have, you know, all their correspondence already published the way a lot of kind of more famous philosophers do. Uh, So that was sort of a lot of the research was archival. And then I guess the other thing worth mentioning is that if you do research on the period before 1925, it's a lot easier than it used to be since almost everything that was published from that time for at least if you're in the United States for copyright reasons, everything before roughly 1925 is available for free online, even things like university course catalogs. So if you want to know, say, what William James was teaching in 1895 at Harvard University, you can just go look up the Harvard catalog on the Internet Archive or Hathie Trust or some other some other sort of online database of books, and you can just read it for free. So, so that really speeds up this kind of research because, of course, in the past, you probably would have had to go to Harvard itself, look through their catalogs and so on. Um. So the, the main thing you would need to imp- go in person to a library for would be it, letters. Is that is and letters and diaries? Letters and diaries, also student lecture notes. So in a lot of cases, you know, so in John Dewey's classes at the University of Chicago, we don't have Dewey's own notes on those classes, even though we have a few sort of printed syllabi from the classes. But we do have lecture notes that were taken by students or taken by stenographers hired by students. And so that gives us a lot of insight into what what he was teaching in the classroom, you know, so we know because of that, for example, that John Dewey in, in 1902, 1903 was actually teaching Jane Adams's book, uh, Democracy and Social Ethics to his students, you know, so there's things like that that you discover from the lecture notes that you wouldn't necessarily know from the published work. That is very cool that that exists. Um, and then just in, you know, so we spoke about the research in terms of the writing, did you kind of ha- have a pretty good idea of the general structure before you started writing or was that or before as before you started uh, researching or is that something that grew as time went on it, it sort of grew but as time went on I mean I think these things I didn't really have a a sense at the very beginning but I think by the time I had written a few chapters I had a sense for for how the whole thing would be structured I ended up uh, writing the whole whole book before before approaching publishers which I guess it's somewhat risky, but at the same time, I think it allowed me to, to shape the project the way I wanted to, rather than sending a couple chapters to a, to an acquisitions editor and then having referees come back with suggested changes and so on. So, so luckily right. it ended up working out in the end. And I think really what, what allowed me to finish work on the book, I got a, a national science foundation fellowship that got me out of teaching for a year. And that allowed me to just kind of put all my time into the book and finish it. So you know, for writing, you need to, to either write every day or to have a, a lot of time away from teaching if you want to get it done. So, um, so diving into the book, um, in the, the late 19th century, I was interested by one of the lines that you wrote. You said that evolutionary ideas uh, are not necessarily the same as Darwinism. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So what I mean is that if you look at discussions of evolution, especially discussions of the social and philosophical implications of evolution, say in the early 19, early 1860s, it's not just the ideas of Darwin, but also those of, of other people like Herbert Spencer that are in the mix. And Spencer and others were defending evolution or what was called the development theory before the origin of species even shows up in 1859, right? So 
The reason I keep coming back to Spencer also, I should mention, is that Spencer was seen as kind of a, a philosopher. He was often called the philosopher of evolution. And so although the characters in the book are also engaging with Darwin's ideas, because Spencer is seen as kind of the philosopher and Darwin is seen as the scientist or naturalist, they're engaging a lot more directly with Spencer than they are with Darwin a lot of the time. And Spencer and Darwin are kind of the two huge names writing about evolution in the in the last decades of the 19th century. And in any case, even, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, please go ahead. I was going to say that even, you know, so that's the 1860s. It's not just Darwin you're talking about, but also people like Spencer, whose ideas are, are different and also more clearly applicable to ethics and sociology and things like that. But then even later, once the scientific community has accepted evolution by roughly mid-1870s, at least in the USA, there's still these ongoing debates. And this is something historians of biology have talked about a lot. There's these ongoing debates about whether natural selection was the primary cause of evolution. So especially by the 1890s, you've got these huge discussions and arguments over what were called the factors of evolution, meaning the causal factors involved in the process, where natural selection is just kind of one of many factors that's that's up for discussion. So the the way the discussions about evolution looked then are, are kind of very different than how they look now, where now we accept that natural selection is the primary cause of adaptive evolution. And uh, tell me if I'm getting this right. I think, you know, before there was this um, debate about the mechanisms of uh, evolution, the, the, the first debate was, does evolution exist? And then, um, you know, towards the, towards later in the 18, in the 1800s, um, there, there was general uh, consensus that evolution existed, um, but then the, the conversation was about the mechanism or the, the factors. That's exactly right, yeah. So initially in the 1860s, it's really, you know, the early reviews of the origin by people I talk about like in the book, like Francis Bowen, a philosophy professor at Harvard, they're just sort of straight up attacking Darwin's main thesis in the origin, right? Whereas later people accept a lot, they accept a lot of Darwin, but they don't accept his claim that natural selection is the main mechanism of evolution. Right. Got it. Um, you, you mentioned the cast of characters and I think you, um, you, you talk about being very careful about who you are, um, spending time talking about. Um, could you, could you tell us, uh, your process for picking which, which people you were going to feature most prominently in the book? Yeah. So when you're writing a book about pragmatism, you there's kind of three you have to talk about, at least if you're working on this period. And those those are uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, William James and John Dewey. They're sometimes called the classical pragmatists. And the reason is that they're they're the kind of the most prominent people in the years around 1900 who were calling themselves pragmatists and endorsing the label, even though some of them left the label behind uh, later in their career. So, so those, those three folks were definitely going to be in the book. And then the question was, who else uh, should I talk about? And what I ended up doing was really looking at, and this is an approach inspired by an uh, intellectual historian and, and philosopher named Sarah Hutton. This, what I ended up doing was looking at the conversations that were actually happening. Who was John Dewey talking to, writing letters to? Who were his colleagues? Who was he reading? And the same for the other uh, three figures. And kind of trying to not worry about whether somebody was a proper philosopher or taught in the philosophy department to, to determine whether they would they would be talked about in the book, right? So what ended up happening is I ended up deciding to talk about a bunch of other figures who we don't really remember that often in the history of philosophy. So and who are more remembered, I think, in the history of the social sciences. So W. E. B. Du Bois, George Herbert Mead, uh, Jane Adams, who I think are doing 
work that's continuous with the work that was getting done in, in philosophy at the time, but work that doesn't always get discussed by historians of philosophy and historians of pragmatism, even though Jane Addams is much more commonly discussed these days. And I think the reason that kind of works is that they were all drawing on this same set of biological ideas, and they were all engaged in something that you might call kind of sociological ethics. So this this sort of hybrid of ethics and social reform and sociology, even though you're not in the philosophy department, that's a set of ideas that you're, you're going to be playing with and applying at the time. I, I don't think we can go much farther uh, without my asking you uh, to please either define or help us understand what does the term pragmatism mean? Yes. So pragmatism is notoriously difficult to kind of pin down as a philosophical position. So what I, it's often associated with, with particular theories of truth and meaning in philosophy. And actually in this, in the intro of the book, I'm just sidestepping that whole discussion because really the way I'm using it, it's just referring to this kind of, loose movement of people within philosophy and the social sciences who emphasize the practical implications of philosophical positions, as well as a kind of experimental approach to scientific and moral inquiry, right? And so even though, you know, William James officially introduces pragmatism in this lecture of 1898, he attributes it to Charles Sanders Peirce, who didn't actually use the term. And then by the early 1900s, pragmatism is being debated. And there's this book that comes out in 1907 by William James called Pragmatism. And then the debates really get going, right? So in the, I guess I should say in the early 1900s, everyone's in the philosophical community in the U.S. is talking about pragmatism. Everyone's debating it. So it's a, it's a really big deal. You know, it's being discussed very frequently. And so, and yet everyone's disagreeing about what exactly pragmatism entails. Everyone's disagreeing about whether if you believe in pragmatism means you're an anti-realist and all, and all these sorts of things. But in the book, really, I'm, I'm using it to kind of delimit my cast of characters to a certain extent. And I'm sort of more interested in this sort of experimental practical aspect of it rather than these more narrow philosophical positions that the term is usually associated with. Um. Just curious, did, did how much of an internal struggle or external struggle did you have in, in naming the book? Um, you know, given that pragmatism is the first word, um, so you know it's an easy way to get a short enough title. But as, as you say, um, the, the the you're you're not necessarily talking about pragmatism itself. Yeah, so I, I do sort of at the very end of the book in the last chapter, get into it a bit, but, but you're right. Yeah. The book is not really about pragmatism. The way I kind of got away with that is that the book is about all the people that are normally associated with pragmatism plus an even wider cast of characters. And so I think that's what led me to give the book that title, because I think the book is going to be of strong interest to anyone interested in the history of pragmatism and in the pragmatists. Right. And so I, I definitely wanted that in the title because that's, that's sort of a big audience of the book, even though the book's also designed to appeal to, to people in the history of biology and the history of philosophy more generally. Um, we talked a bit about how you chose um, the people whom you feature. You talk in the um, in the book about using uh, the cohort approach or looking at the, um, people using uh, college graduation date um, or uh, university graduation date as a, as a way to group people. Um, can you talk about the um, first cohort uh, and kind of what 
were some of who, who were the people there and what were some of their defining thoughts and features? Yeah. So just to clarify the cohort approach a little bit, this this idea of cohort in the social sciences is sort of referring to a group of people who experienced the same sort of external event or stimulus in the same time interval. So that the famous cases are things like if you're a certain age, when the Great Depression hits, there's certain generalities that we, we can we can appeal to to talk about your group. Right. And so in the book, I use college graduation dates, as you mentioned. And so the first set of folks I'm talking about, the people who I'm calling the first cohort are people that that graduated right around the time just before and after Darwin's origin of species appeared in, in 1859. And so the people in that book, the people in, in, in that cohort are for the most part, the people who are associated with what was called the metaphysical club. And there's this of course famous book by, by Manand called the Metaphysical Club that won the Pulitzer Prize. And it talks about a lot of those, those same people. So they all graduated from Harvard. They formed this philosophical club starting in the 1870s uh, to, talk about, to talk about philosophy. And a lot of those discussions were happening right at the same time that all the members of that first cohort were directly engaged in debates about Darwin's theory, right? So for example, uh, there's, a, there's a guy named Chauncey Wright who had a big debate with the Harvard philosopher Francis Bowen about Darwin's account of the instincts of honeybees and whether you know honeybees could really be, be sort of pushed by natural selection towards building their mathematically perfect cells and so on, right? And so I guess one of the things I wanted to say about this first cohort, and let me give you some names, Chauncey Wright, William James, Charles Sanders Peirce, Francis Ellingwood Abbott, John Fisk, is that they were all sort of deeply connected to discussions about evolution and in fact themselves engaged in those discussions, right? And I think that's a little bit more more well-known than than some of the later stuff, but I think we didn't really have a lot of the details about, about how they engaged with evolution. And I think we didn't really pay usually pay that much attention to to people that are are seen in the history of philosophy as more peripheral people like John Fisk and Francis Ellingwood Abbott and Chauncey Wright but I think those are those three are kind of the more scientifically inclined initially especially biologically and evolutionarily inclined of that first cohort and I think they were part of the reason that the person James ended up ended up moving away from their old their old teacher, uh, Louis Agassiz, a famous opponent of Darwin and towards evolutionary ideas in the late 1860s and 1870s. Right. And so like, uh, if I understand correctly, uh, a lot of the thinking of the first cohort was uh, in large part a reaction to um, what, what Spencer had written um, and possibly uh, as a reaction to uh, the beliefs of Agassiz. Uh, could you talk about what they, um, what those two people um, thought and wrote about and uh, how the first cohort reacted to that? Sure. So, so Agassiz had a kind of what we now think of as sort of a theological approach to natural history where the different groups of organisms, even though you see progress in the fossil record, or so they said, right, you see these more and more complex organisms appearing in the fossil record, and Agassiz knew all about that and talked about it, he still viewed classification as a whole, natural history classification as a whole, as kind of a, a, a vast plan and design of God, right? And he he opposed the development theory even before Darwin came onto the scene. And then when Darwin came onto the scene, Agassiz was one of his most famous critics. And so, for example, Agassiz 
takes this trip uh, to to Brazil, which William James joins up with. And the point of the trip really is to find evidence against Darwin's theory, right? And so, so that's sort of what's going on there. And both both James and Purse actually worked for Agassiz. Purse's dad was very close friends with Agassiz. And so that he was kind of a major intellectual influence on them. And I think partly led to their being a bit more cautious than the other people I talk about in the first cohort to accept evolution. Um, that's Louis Agassiz. So the other person you you asked about was... Uh, Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer, yeah. So, so Spencer has an evolutionary view that's kind of more, it's just more general than Darwin's, right? So Spencer is going to see evolution everywhere, the evolution of industry, the evolution of ethics. So well before Darwin talks about ethics, Spencer is writing all about the evolution of society, the evolution of ethics and so on, right? So he's he's a, a prominent interlocutor for the pragmatists because they're philosophers and they want to engage with somebody who's philosophizing with this, with these evolutionary ideas. Right. So, so some of the things they're opposed to in Spencer's work are this idea that ethics is proceeding to this kind of endpoint where every, every individual will become kind of completely altruistic, whatever the individual will desires is just what society needs. That's kind of the end of ethics for Spencer. Right. And, And all the pragmatists kind of make fun of this idea. They, this idea that some, at some future point, there won't be any more conflict and tension, right. Dewey is especially opposed to that. Right. And so that's one of the ideas they're opposed to the other idea in Spencer that they're opposed to. And this is in a little bit unfair to Spencer, to be honest, is this idea that, the external environment just kind of shapes the mind. And when you look at the human mind and you're trying to understand the human mind, you should just be looking at how that mind is adapted to its complex external environment, right? So Spencer thinks more complicated organisms are adapted to more complex environments, things that are farther apart in time and space and so on, right? And a lot of James's early work is is designed to attack that view of Spencer, This that, that Peter Godfrey Smith has called externalism, right? This idea that the external environment shapes the mind. James wants to make room for the interests of, a, of an individual to shape the everything that comes in from the external environment, right? And thus to kind of leave room for a sort of individual creativity and inventiveness in determining how we experience and even what we experience. Besides for reactions um, against um, or in in response to uh, those two individuals and others, uh, are there any other um, unifying beliefs or or thoughts uh, of the first cohort of uh, individuals? Yeah, so I think they were certainly all committed to this this idea that we need to attend to the practical implications of our philosophical theories. So in that, to that extent, they were, they were definitely pragmatists. They had a lot of other disagreements, but I think one thing to emphasize is that these cohorts are not, are not grouped together because of shared ideas. Rather they're grouped together because they're, they experience the same external kind of shock, if you will, during the same time interval, right? So all those people in the first cohort because the origin of species came out right when they finished college, they had this, they, they jumped into those debates about evolution right away. And it, it, it has a kind of a different flavor than the later pragmatists, because for the later pragmatists, evolution is kind of just in the textbooks and they have to deal with it. Right. Whereas for the first set of pragmatists, there's, there's all these initial debates about whether we're even going to buy evolution as an account of the history of life and whether we should, 
you know, believe Darwin's account and, and so on. And all that stuff is sort of Darwin's theories are just mostly accepted later, in, at least in terms of the history of life, even if they're not accepted in terms of the primacy of natural selection. Right. Um, it, it, again, it can, um, can we just, just for um, general information, um, even, even if it's not our focus, um, how do the ideas that we've talked about so far fit into you know, the philosophy of pragmatism? Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the ways that it figures in, I mean, this is sort of anticipating the, the stuff in the last two chapters of the book, but one of the ways it fits in is that evolution is seen by the first cohort of pragmatists, especially by, by James and Peirce as a kind of experimental process, right? And so Peirce is really explicit about this. He sort of sees evolutionary variation as as akin to experimentation. And he says that, you know, the when scientists come up with hypotheses, that's a kind of experimental process, just as when new variations in, appear in nature, that's kind of an experimental process. And then as with all experiment, you have to be responsible to the evidence that you get back during the experiment, right? So just as natural selection is is going to select from the available variation, right? In the same way, in scientific inquiry, certain ideas are going to be rejected, right? Because the experiment doesn't, doesn't show what you expected it to show, right? And so one of the things that's kind of interesting from our modern point of view is that we we sort of the words you usually hear with reference to variation when you learn about evolution in a biology class would be random variation right whereas the debates in the last part of the 19th century were really about whether or not variation is biased in some way right and so Peirce thought that just just as the ideas of scientists tend to be in the right ballpark so his idea is that when scientists come up with hypotheses usually they're they're kind of constrained in such a way that they don't have to go through kind of an indefinite number of hypotheses before they hit on something plausible. In the same way, Peirce sort of thinks that evolution or nature is biased in that way, right? That variations in a, in a direction that are going to be adaptive are, are more likely than others, right? And so now, the later in later periods of the history of biology, this will be rejected as kind of a Lamarckian idea. But in the late 19th century, Lamarckian ideas were kind of going strong. And there was, it was really not until really the the early 1900s and even 19, 1930s that that Lamarckism was was really put aside. But anyway, I'm getting kind of into the weeds there. But but yeah, that's that's one of the big things I think that that come that leads them from evolution to these philosophical ideas is that just as with evolution it's about these experimental variations and seeing what how they do with the environment in the same way in philosophy it's about these these new hypotheses, these new approaches to philosophy, these new social policies, and how those social policies do in the social environment where they appear, right? So in philosophy and ethics, it's all about the social environment rather than the biological environment, but there's supposed to be kind of an analogy there. Right, right. Um, you, you talk about um, casting a wider net in terms of um, including individuals who are not um, among the quote, classical pragmatists. Um, when you were um, looking at the first cohort, um, what what do you think, um, including those other individuals, uh, added to the discussion? 
So I think with the first cohort specifically, which is sort of much smaller than the other cohorts, which sort of makes sense because pragmatism wasn't really a thing yet uh, in the, during the first cohort, you have this group of people that are related in some way to Harvard University, right? I think one of the things that casting the wider net does, looking at that cohort specifically, is it allows you to see some of the reasons the, the pragmatists are taking the approach they do because you see those those ideas in some of the other people that are less often discussed, right? So for example, and this is a kind of younger member of the first cohort, but Francis Greenwood Peabody, who nobody really talks about anymore, but who is professor of Christian morals at Harvard and was really a theologian, also wrote all this stuff about social reform and social policy, which ended up having, and now we're getting into the second cohort, Peabody's work ended up having an influence on people like Du Bois and Dewey in the second cohort because Peabody was actually Du Bois's teacher in a course called The Philosophy of Social Reform at Harvard. Peabody was publishing in the Andover Review, which was a central venue for Dewey's own work in the late 19th century. And so I think casting the net just allows you to see connections that, that people haven't seen before. Right? And I think Peabody's one of those people who really whose work kind of encapsulates what I think was going on with what I called sociological ethics earlier. This idea that that in the late 19th century, people had the sense that they were living in a new time with, with increased immigration, people living together in cities, increased struggles between capital and labor. There was a sense that the old ethics weren't going to work anymore. And Peabody talks about that a lot in, in his work on the ethics of social reform. He says, look, we need a new ethics for this new social environment that we're living in now in the late 19th century. And I think that's a really, really important theme for, for the second cohort. And you wouldn't really spot that connection unless you were including Peabody in the group of people in the first cohort in the first place. Right. Got it. Yeah. So, so let's stick with the, with the second cohort. Um, how, um, who, who, who are the folks in that cohort? And you mentioned a defining characteristic is uh, the fact that they kind of grew up with, um, with evolution and, you know, it was in the textbooks. How, how did that shape their thinking in a way that was different from uh, the folks in the first cohort? Yeah. So I have a longer list in the book. So I guess I'll say that I'm, these are the sort of earlier members of the second cohort, but yeah, John Dewey, Jane Adams, uh, Josiah Royce, W.E.B. Du Bois and George Herbert Mead are the people I talk about a lot in the book. And those folks, as you said, when they when they were in college and everyone in in doing an undergraduate degree at the time would do kind of a set curriculum. And so in the natural history courses that all of these second cohort pragmatists took, they would they, they were learning about evolution and they were just learning about evolution as the standard view of the history of life by the time they got to college. Right. So it really has a different kind of feel. Right. Because rather rather than say rejecting evolution because of its theological implications, as you might do in the 1860s, by the 1880s, their, their, their teachers in courses like Christian Evidences are trying to explain how evolution and, and religion are compatible, right? So there's this sense that, you know, evolution is the correct account of the history of life. How do we cope with that theologically, right? And and so that's part of part of what distinguishes the second cohort. I think another thing that distinguishes them distinguishes them, Purse is somewhat of an exception here, is their attraction to philosophical idealism, actually. So a lot this this is not necessarily generational, but it is to a certain extent. So I guess the the British idealists had become more prominent by the time the second cohort started started doing their work in philosophy. And people like uh, Dewey and Mead in particular were 
were very influenced by those movements. And so the way they talk about the organism-environment relation is, I think, a little bit different than those of the first cohort because of that influence of idealism. And I talk about that in one of the book chapters. And could you just give us a, a bit of a background of, of what the idealists uh, were thinking? Yeah, so, you know, idealism traditionally is supposed to be this idea that at least the the sort of most naive, simplistic version of idealism says that all that exists are ideas, right? Matter, matter doesn't exist. So that's not really the, the part of idealism that I'm interested in in the book. Rather, it's this group of idealists who were, who were starting from this from this challenge to the subject-object dichotomy that earlier idealists had had sort of set out. And they were trying to do that same sort of thing, but they were trying to do it for the organism-environment dichotomy. So just as the earlier idealists had said, subject and object should be seen as aspects of one more fundamental thing, right? These later idealists who influenced the pragmatists were saying organism and environment shouldn't really be seen as these two entities. They should be seen as as these two aspects of life that we only analyze life into when necessary, right? And so especially in Dewey, but also in, in, in Mead and others, you get this, what I call in the book, a, a more dialectical notion of the organism-environment relationship where not only does the environment shape the organism, but the organism shapes the environment. And not only that, but, but it, it might be the case that organism and environment are just two aspects of experience or life, or or some something more fundamental, right? That's kind of the metaphysical aspect of it. Um, you spoke about the the idea of uh, how people were um, trying to um, um, see how uh, these the idea of evolution could coexist uh, with religious. Uh, religious beliefs. Can you talk about how some of the um, folks that you uh, feature um, went about um, allowing those two ideas to coexist? Yeah. So some of them, like like Dewey kind of famously, ended up going in a more naturalistic direction. So Dewey later in his career has this book, The Common Faith, that does you know, prominently use this organism-environment dichotomy. And Dewey's arguing something like, it's religious experience that's important. Religious doctrine is less important, right? And you get that also in William James's book, of course, variety, the varieties of religious experience, where the emphasis is on is on empirically tractable experience, even if it's individual, rather than more traditional orthodox religious doctrine, right? So that's one one kind of approach. Another approach is just to to see evolution and change as as kind of sort of more theologically central than people had thought in the past right so you get this a, a lot in um in francis ellingwood abbott this member of the first cohort that i talked about where he sort of sees he sees evolution and as more theologically on the up and up because it's connected to to reason somehow in a way that he sees miracle as, as not. So he sees miracle, I guess, as, as something that's more irrational. And so he actually says, look, evolution is actually, is actually more, more what we should want in our theology than miracles, right? And so he says that the doctrine of evolution is, is what we should embrace that is at the center of our theology, right? Because it's connected to rationality and progress in a way that, that these kind of unmotivated miracles are not, right? Right. And so there's a lot of discussion about um, the tension or how to relieve the tension between 
um, evolution and religion. Uh, how prevalent uh, was the view that they simply are not compatible and we're just going to move on? Yeah, so that's a good question. There's there's this huge uh, literature now on what's called the conflict thesis, which is the conflict between science and religion, right? And one of the things that's come out of one of the things that's come out of that literature in the history of science by by James Moore and, and Ron Numbers and others is that the conflict thesis is really an invention of the late nineteenth century, right? In the late nineteenth century people decided that there had been this perennial conflict between science and religion, right? And they wrote books about this. But if you look at the characters that I talk about, really none of them saw a kind of obvious conflict, right? I think the conflict was between orthodoxy at the time in the late 19th century and evolution, right? If you were already, you know, a Unitarian, which was a pretty a pretty radical, not necessarily radical, but but certainly a pretty broad-minded thing to be, then you didn't have as many problems with evolution, for example. Or if you if you were the, you know, Chauncey Wright talks about this a lot. So he's sometimes seen as an, sort of an atheist, but his position is is a little more subtle. It's more like, look, if if we're discovering these new things in science, right, and we're pretty confident in their empirical basis the right theological reaction is to try to understand how religion can be adjusted such that we can, we can maintain our religion while not sort of directly contradicting these empirically supported theories within science. Right. And so this doesn't mean abandoning religion. It means that if something has got to give, it's not going to be the thing with the firm empirical basis. Right. And so that's kind of Chauncey Wright's position. And there, there are a lot of different positions among the people I talk about in the book. But yeah, I think that that even though there was a lot of discussion at the time about the tension between evolution and religion, I think the right way to see that and really the right way to see it today is as a tension between evolutionary ideas and a kind of orthodoxy in religion in certain certain kinds of religion where, you know, because there's, there's obviously lots of people. And if you look at the history of biology, this is even more obvious who are both for example, Christians and evolutionists, right? And that's certainly the case for the characters in my book. And that's certainly the case today, right? So. Got it. So, you know, uh, the, the the idea of evolution wasn't bringing about a, a, a mass conversion to atheism at the time. Definitely not. Um, certainly people were saying it was, right? And I think one of the things it did do, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book, is it did, it did lead some young people, in particular George Herbert Mead, to a kind of crisis of faith, right? And so it's not that there weren't people who, you know, read Herbert Spencer and questioned their faith. Of course there were, and there's lots of evidence of that, right? But as for whether there's this kind of widespread set of people converting to atheism in the face of evolution, I just, I just don't think that was the case. Yeah, I, there's because there's so many people, if you read the literature of the time, who are who are reconciling their religion with evolutionary ideas and really doing it without too much trouble, right? And so there's lots of compromised positions available to people at the time such that they don't need to, if they if they were pushed towards atheism, it wasn't simply because of evolution. There has to be something more going on because that's just not how people were constrained. It was very easy to be both religious and an evolutionist in the late 19th century. 
Uh, towards the end of the book, you talk about uh, how all of this debate and thought cul culminates in uh, the development of an experimental evolutionary approach to moral and scientific inquiry um, in, the, in uh, over two chapters. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So there's sort of two parts to it. The first is a kind of commitment to what to this idea of organism environment mismatch as a framework for understanding social change. And I'll talk more about that. And the second part of it is seeing is seeing social progress as a kind of evolutionary experimental progress. So the first part is, is that something I mentioned when I was talking about Peabody earlier in the podcast. So this idea that we need a new code of ethics or we need new institutions to cope with a changing, much more complicated, much more diverse social environment than what we had in the past, right? So there's this idea that we're, we're viewing things in this, what I'm thinking of as the organism environment framework, but in this case, it's not an, it's not an organism, it's the, or it's the social organism at least, and it's not necessarily the biological environment, it's the social environment of ideas and institutions and so on, right? So... So the idea that a lot of them endorsed was that there was kind of this mismatch such that we needed new moral codes, new new social institutions to cope with a changed social environment. That's one part of it. And the second part of it is this idea of experimental evolutionary progress. And that relates to what I mentioned with Peirce earlier, where they're viewing variation in evolution as experimental. But obviously, when it's social policymaking intention is, is much more part of the story. So it's much more obviously experimental than, than we would think of evolutionary variation, right? So the idea here is that they think that if, if you're doing social policymaking or social reform or even scientific inquiry, you should have this experimental attitude, right? So it can't just be evolution going along without any intervention, the way Herbert Spencer maybe wanted it to be, because Herbert Spencer was a, a famous defender of laissez-faire, right, in, in, in economics and sociology. And so they were definitely opposed to that idea, the idea that you could sit back and evolution would just would just progress towards this 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 more positive endpoint, right? They thought they thought you had to be interventionist. You had to have this kind of scientifically guided policymaking, this, scient this scientifically rigorous inquiry, right? But that inquiry, they still viewed as evolutionary because they saw hypotheses or in, the, in sciences or social institutions or reforms in the realm of ethics and sociology as these kinds of experimental variations that that had to be responsible to to how they really performed, right? In, in a concrete sense, right? So this, the idea would be something like, let's try this new educational policy out and and see how it goes right and if it doesn't go well then we have to we have to think of something else to do right and they were of course they wasn't it sounds kind of simplistic when you think of it that way but of course they're they're thinking about it in more complicated terms too so they realized that if you if you introduce some new social institution of course you're changing the social environment as well by doing that and that may create new problems that you hadn't anticipated, right? So in trying to solve your initial problem, you may be creating new problems. And that's something that a lot of the second cohort pragmatists talk about a lot, right? But but that's the sort of general framework that there's this mismatch between the social organism and the social environment, meaning that the social, the social organism, its institutions have to change, right? And on the other, on the other hand, that this change is evolutionary, but at the same time, experimental in that the evolution can't just go, go on by itself. It has to be guided. Um, right. In, in biology, you have, uh, you know, mutations that are going to arise. You have to, I guess in, in the social, um, 
setting, you have to introduce those mutations? Not always necessarily. Of course, there are things that can happen accident. I mean, you know, people knew about things like natural experiments at the time, right? And so sometimes the thing that social changes are simply introduced. But yes, that's right. But the complicating factor is that, and that maybe the reason they saw the analogy as, as, as sort of working better than we might see it today, is that for them, biological mutations weren't necessarily random, right? Some of those were guided as well, right? Whether by whether by the uh, breeder on the one hand, or just a kind of general bias in variation of the sort I mentioned before, that person first, right? Right. Um, what is the legacy of some of the thinking that we've been talking about? What's what's the evidence of of some of these thinkers' um, writing and thoughts today? So I think even though people working in these areas might not might not see themselves as part of this lineage, I think that people who are doing sort of experimental approaches to social policymaking, experimental approaches in the classroom in terms of educational interventions, all those folks are are working in the in the kind of the later stages of this broader tradition. I think it's notable that some of Dewey's more prominent influence than within philosophy was in the field of education and in the social sciences as well, right? So like in the 1920s, at the foundations of a lot of uh, sort of American social science, you get these people reading Dewey's uh, book, Human Nature and Conduct, which comes out in 1922, which I think was sort of taken up almost more by social scientists than by philosophers. Uh, And so I think that's one of the ways within philosophy, I think there's I think now, especially in philosophy of science, which is a subfield where, where I got started, there's, there's a lot of people who are sort of pragmatists, even though they might not be comfortable calling themselves pragmatists. The reason they might not be comfortable is that pragmatism is associated with this theory of truth that, that in its most naive form just says what's true is what works, right? So I don't think any of the pragmatists endorse that sort of naive view. But at the same time, that view has kind of tarnished pragmatism, right? And so a lot of philosophers of science today wouldn't want to call themselves pragmatists. But I think if you think about pragmatism as a commitment to the practical implications of philosophical positions and as a kind of experimental attitude about how we do philosophy, I think there's a lot of philosophers who could get behind that. You know, So Dewey in a 1908 lecture says, you know, you can call it pragmatism or you can just call it the experimental habit of mind. And I think there's a lot of people who are willing to sign on to the experimental habit of mind in philosophy and the social sciences who wouldn't be willing to sign on to what they think of as the pragmatist theory of truth or something like that. Um, you know, and then besides for um, philosophers and, and historians, I, I think just one of the things that you brought up uh, at the beginning, which I find so fascinating, is that I, I think all of us uh, have this kind of thinking um, really ingrained in us. And, and it's hard to wrap your head around because it's just... Um, it comes naturally. We I don't even think about it, but you know the the word evolution. The um, you know as you said the the environment organism environment, which just I think we all walk around assuming that's like that's that's correct. But people actually came up with that idea. So so there are a lot of it seems like there are a lot of um, concepts and ideas that um, that are just uh, really pervasive and and affect all of us. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Pierce, what are you working on now? What's up next for you? Uh, So right now I've 
been starting this project on there. There's a, a figure in the book who comes up briefly, a, a physiology teacher of Jane Addams in her one semester of medical school, whose name is Frances Emily White. And so she was a, a woman doctor and physiology professor at the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. And it turns out that she was also a radical materialist. And I got kind of interested in a way that, you know, most people wouldn't have been at the time, you know, writing in Popular Science Monthly and just straight up endorsing the materialist account of consciousness and so on, right? And so I got interested in White, and then I got invited to write a chapter on Antoinette Brown Blackwell, who's another woman in the late 19th century who wrote a lot about about evolution. And so the chapter I'm working on is sort of a contrast between Blackwell and White, where both of them are, are giving kind of feminist critiques of evolution in the late 19th century, but at the same time, White is this hard-nosed materialist and Blackwell has a kind of evolution that's more that's more kind of theologically framed. So I want to try to understand these two sort of competing feminist accounts of, of evolution. The other thing I'm working on now is a kind of history of the relation between the comparative sciences in the 19th century and and philosophy. So by comparative science, I'm I, scientists, I mean things like comparative grammar, comparative geography. There was kind of a craze for comparative everything in the 19th century and you know anthropology being part of this story as well and all that was kind of in the background i think of some of the approaches that the pragmatists took to ethics right so even though they didn't say that they had a comparative ethics that's kind of the flavor you get right that you that ethics is really about what works in the particular social environment you're in right and so something that might work for a particular social environment might not work for another social environment. And that's, of course, setting them against the, all the positions in ethics that say we can have a general theory of ethics that's universal, that works everywhere, right? So the, the pragmatists have a kind of more comparative evolutionary take that I think is influenced by, by some of these anthropologists. Got it. Well, uh, we'll definitely stay tuned to hear more about those projects. Um, but for this uh for this interview, we will uh, bring bring things to a close. Thank you so much for for joining us, Dr. Pierce. This uh, this was a fascinating and um, and engaging conversation. Thank you very much for having me.